Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. In the beginning, God made everything and it was good. Our fellowship with Him was very good. But our rebellion shattered every relationship. Our sin brought the curse of death. We can see that things are not the way they are supposed to be. Our world is broken. We long for our redemption. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into our world. He lived and died and rose again before returning to his Father's right hand. Soon, Jesus will return. Every eye will see Him, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb slain for sinners who overcame, and He will make all things new. Even so, come. Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, <laughs> Amen. Whew. Just like a countdown, Sunday by Sunday. This is all choir practice. That's what this is. This is the church family gathering together, preparing to one day have the veil that separates us between the presence of the Lord and now, and it will be, we will see him face to face. Revelation chapter 3. This morning we are going to look at a church that we pray in all seriousness would never be the testimony of this church. The church at Sardis was the dead church. So far we've studied the letters from Jesus through the Apostle John to the loveless church at Ephesus. The persecuted church at Smyrna, at Pergamum, we saw the compromising church. Thyatira, last Sunday, was the corrupt church. But today we dive into this fifth letter, beginning here in chapter 3, and Jesus refers to this church as the dead church. The seven churches there in your Bible in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 Loved ones, these were real churches. There was actually a church in this city named Sardis. There was a church there. And these seven churches are also symbolic. There are churches like these seven churches throughout planet Earth today. It's also can be realized there are believers that are like this. In each of these ways, there are believers who are compromising. There are believers in the world who are being persecuted. There are believers in the world who are doctrinally sound, and they're just nasty. They're mean. They're unkind. There are people that have abandoned doctrine, but they're really kind and really nice, like we saw at Thyatira. In his book, this is the, the book here, Stephen said, I have this book, Tom Rainier's book, An Autopsy of a Deceased Church. Tom Rainier gives, I'm just going to give seven this morning, there's more in the book, but he says here, when you're doing an autopsy of a church, here's some of the factors that lead to a church's death, a church's demise. Number one, treating the past as hero. Oh, back when, fill in the blank. Yeah, it was the good old days back then. Number two, refusing to adapt to the needs of the present community. Where, where the congregation that gathers, they don't reflect the community around them. They're not connected to the community, community around them. They're not concerned with that community. So they refuse to adapt to the needs of the present community. That's the second one that will come on the screen. 
Number three is allowing the Great Commission to become the Great Omission. Number four is letting the church become preference-driven out of selfish and personal agendas. Well, pastor, I think we should do, well, we should do this, we should do that. Oh, let's, and it's all over the place and it's run by polling the people. What do people want instead of what does the Lord have for his church? Number five, failing to have regular corporate times of prayer. That just moves to a back agenda. Number six, having no clear purpose or vision. What are we here for? What are we doing? And this one, pastoral decrease in tenure. You realize right now, in our country, the average stay of a pastor in a congregation is about 18 months. You didn't know a thing about me in 18 months when you hired me and when I was in just getting out of junior high way back in the day. <laughs> Words cannot express, loved ones, how grateful I am to God, first and foremost, and to you that we have grown together over the last since 2006 Easter. That is a blessing from God that I do not dismiss or discount. That is a supreme blessing. You ladies gathering the other night, I've known you for many years now. I look forward to those hugs that you give. What I heard in the fellowship and the relationship around, it's like I have an increasingly large family of ladies and more ladies and more ladies. And I love that. It was just prayed this morning. This church that God has placed in someone praying has adopted me. This is my family. Praise God for this. So then we're going to see. All right, yeah, go for it. Let it go. What did, then did the Lord have to say at this church here in Sardis? And my question is always this. That, that's interesting what he would say to Sardis and Ephesus and all these other churches, but what would he say to us? What would he say to the pastor and the people of Richmond? What would he say to us? Well, let's be sensitive to what the Spirit would say to the churches as we've invited the Spirit, come, have your way. You change what we see, and when we see differently, we seek different things. Our priorities change. What we used to view as, I'll, I'll clear everything for this, when we see Jesus rightly, we clear everything for him. That is a testimony of a child of God. Revelation chapter three, follow along there in your Bibles. And this is what comes from the Lord through John and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains, and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's dive into this this morning. Let's study this then. Each of these messages, they follow the same format. There's an introduction that Jesus gives, the introduction to his message, and this one is a little unusual. This one, the introduction, if it, it's like many small towns. We got towns around here. If you blink, you miss them. Like, no, there it was back there. You just went through that town. That's, the, that's Jesus' introduction here to Sardis. It's just a blip. Uh, there will be a photo come up here on the map of this region all right, so we've looked at these letters. Now we're on around the, this mail route. We're over to Sardis, the fifth church. The legacy of Sardis was this, this area, this city, this region deteriorated rapidly. 
Sardis was once, once the ancient capital of the Lydian Empire. And there will be a picture come on the screen that you can see the darkest purple there down in the corner where we just saw the map to those seven churches. That was, that was the epicenter of the Lydian Empire. And the influence of the Lydian Empire, it, it, it covered most of that region there. Their influence was wide. Founded in approximately 1200 BC, and it was notorious for its Acropolis, all right? Acropolis is a fortress. It's at the top. So if you imagine you're a, an enemy and you're coming with your army, and you have to, you ever walked a mountain? You ever hiked a mountain? And you looked at it from a distance, and you're like, yeah, we can probably get up there in a couple hours. And then you start hiking that dude. And then you get a little ways in and you forgot your water and you forgot your granola bars and you forgot everything. You forgot the right shoes. And you're looking at the top saying, I thought it was just a hill. Look at this guy. 1,500 feet up to the pinnacle from ground level. There in the center was also a temple of Artemis. And this temple, you can see the remains of it was never finished. But that temple in the shadow, like we're protected. We have this goddess here and we've got the mountain. Oh, we're a strong city. But it was also known for its necropolis. And this is cemeteries everywhere. And this is just a, in that region, there's a pyramid tomb. And so when you would come in, you could see, they say from seven miles out, you could see on all of these hills, just burials, 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 burials. That you have this Acropolis and you have this temple that never was finished, and then you have all these burial sites. Does it sound familiar to what we just read in the letter? That's why these letters are pertinent to a specific people. This Acropolis here in Sardis, as I said, was about 1,500 feet above the main roads. It formed an impregnable fortress. That fortress frequently became the place that people would run to the fortress, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings. Let's go to Helm's Deep, you know, let's get there. Let's hide out. This one is up on a rock. We're going to have an advantage. Times of war. It was attacked often. It was only conquered twice. This is interesting. When Cyrus led the Persian army in the 6th century B.C. against the city, they were to stand still. Armies down low, they're held up high, they have the advantage. You just send people, if you send people, they just die. You can't take this, can't take this hill. And then one of the Persian soldiers of Cyrus was watching the city carefully. He saw that one of the soldiers that was up in the, in the fortress, in the Acropolis, a helmet was dropped. He dropped his helmet. So he snuck out and went through the secret staircase to retrieve his helmet. And the Persian sh soldier was watching and he said, hey, hey, I see, the, I see the way. I see the way into the city. Come on. And they followed him back up in and they conquered the city. They weren't ready for it. They were basically asleep in the fortress. And there was compromise on the part of one. 200 years, similarly, it happened again when Antiochus attacked the city. The two times the city fell. It fell because somebody wasn't doing their job on the inside. Somebody didn't take seriously the security of the city, the fortress. The main religion there in Sardis was the worship of Artemis. Her temple rivaled the size of the temple in Ephesus. But as I've said, this temple was never completed. They never finished this temple. It was not complete. The works were not complete in the sight of their God. In the, the necropolis that was there, it was called a cemetery of a thousand hills containing burial mounds, hundreds of them visible from miles away. This was a major city. There's a photo that'll come of Main Street. Here it is, right here. They had strip malls. Right there they are. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun, right? Just swing by right there. There's a Dollar General, and there's the green one, and there's the other one where you're going to get all the stuff you need. They, they were known for their wool industry, so they would make wool garments, and people would come through there, and that's where they would be clothed then in garments walking out from that trade area. 
The city had become a mere shadow when this letter comes to them of its former majestic splendor. You'll see a photo come up. There it is. There's your pool. You better not, better not dive on that one. I don't see any no diving signs, but you better not dive on that one. You better just walk in cautiously. The gymnasium pool, you'll see another picture of just the out front, this, this massive. You see this? Okay. You know, anybody watching football yesterday? Obviously, okay. All right, people watching football and you think 100,000, 50,000, 60,000 loved ones. I keep reiterating, this is what it looks like looking backwards. What matters is the souls that were in that place that were shared the gospel by the church in Sardis or they were not sharing the gospel in that place and that's what it looks like now. It doesn't matter who could bench what in that place. It doesn't matter who could swim how fast in that pool in that place because it all ended up in the final picture, the latrine of human history. If it is not done by the Spirit of God and for Christ, there it is. There's the restroom. That's what it looks like. Not done for Christ. So this is a very meaningful letter that Jesus gives. William Barclay says it this way. He says, the peace of the man whose dreams are dead. That's what this city was like. And whose mind is asleep. The peace of lethargy and invasion, evasion. That's what this church was like. They were just content. They didn't have anything more to conquer. They just were content and were fine like somebody who just gave up on everything they were living for and they're just going through the motions till they die. That's this church. And this letter comes to the messenger, to the pastor, to the one who would be responsible to bring the good tidings, bring the message, bring the news of the living God. And we don't know anything about the identity of this under-shepherd. We don't have any account of who this guy was. Most likely he was well-respected in the community. Oh, we love that pastor of Sardis Church over there. That's a wonderful man. He's an upstanding man of the community. He's always doing all kinds of thing, things, but he wasn't leading the church to invade the darkness. It turned inward. Us four, no more, bar the doors, debt-free, all paid for. Let's just coast. Absolutely not. No. We, the people of grace, say no way. Let's actually Pick a fight. Let's go there. Let's spend and be spent for the glory of Christ for people all around us are perishing and they're perishing without the gospel and how easily I can be lulled to sleep. This is what, as a responsibility that I have and Russ and Jay with me and that the Lord would raise up others and he will to help shepherd in this congregation. And Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 1, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness. You hear that humility in Peter? I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as, oh yeah, I was there on that mountain. You see how he tucks that in? A partaker in the, in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain don't use people to advance your financial portfolio but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock and listen to this sobering reminder that the pastor in Sardis forgot and when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory pray that that'll never be forgotten by anyone serving in a role of shepherd in this congregation i pray that for other churches in our community and region this church was in sardis it would have been very difficult to distinguish the Christian, the member of the Sardis church from anybody else in the society. They would, have, they would have appeared like a religious person. They were a good person. They did their job well. They functioned. You could trust them. Morally upstanding. They're, they're good people. 
but they weren't distinctively Christian. You couldn't pick them out. Like, who's a Christian on this floor? Who's a Christian in this department? Um, I don't know. We're all pretty good. We're all pretty good. You wouldn't say, that lady over there, she's always talking about Jesus. We'll talk weather. She talks Jesus. Yeah, you know, the Lord's in control or something. I mean, she always has something to say that redirects our heart and our mind to Jesus. She's a Christian. She's like a little Jesus. Most, you know, annoying at times because we get tired of hearing about Jesus until something happens and they need someone to pray for them. And then they say, I'm going to that, that one that used to, I thought annoyed me, but I really know they love me. I know he cares about me. He, he gets on my nerves, but not because he's a jerk, because he's always reminding me of Jesus. Oh, may God use us in that way. Nobody in this church was that way. This letter comes from Jesus. The description, it just moves right in. The, one, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. What is this? That Jesus possesses infinite power. That's what the seven spirits has to do with here. It's not referring to a number of spirits. It's referring to the completeness of the Spirit of God. That this one, Jesus, I have the seven spirits of God. I have the complete Spirit of God, and I am the promised ruler coming from the line of David. So this would have connected to the Old Testament, Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall, this prophecy given, come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So in Revelation 1.4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. We studied that. Revelation 4, 5, we'll come to it. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning tor seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Revelation 5, 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He knows everything. He is, there's nothing hidden from him. He has all authority. It's infinite power that Jesus has. And it's by the Spirit of God. He convicts of sin. Everything is exposed to him who has the eyes that burn like fire. And he convicts us of sin. He is the one who can convince and change somebody who has a hollow profession of faith and say, actually, I know what you're saying, but it isn't matching truth. It's not genuine. Hebrews 4.13 And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. So loved ones, if we don't have the Spirit of God, we can, what can we do? What are we going to do as a church if the Spirit of God doesn't do this? What change is going to happen in your family or in your own heart or my heart or my life if the Spirit of God doesn't do it? They could have stood outside of Lazarus' tomb all day saying, Lazarus, come out. But without the Spirit of God, Lazarus would have never walked out of, the, out of that tomb. But the Spirit of God gives life. John 15, Jesus says, you, you don't have me. You can't do anything. There's nothing you can do. Keep coming to me. Zechariah 4, 6. I love this. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might. Read this with me. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Let's read it again. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. How will anything be accomplished in our lives that will stand the test of time and eternity? Right there. Zechariah 4, 6. And Jesus says, I have it. It's all mine. I come bringing the power and you don't have any. He has complete authority. He says the seven stars. So we saw there in his hand, chapter one, then we've already seen he's holding them. 
grasping them, they're mine. That he holds his messengers firmly in his right hand and the Lord can move his pastors when and wherever he sees fit. He can have them be born. He can have them slain. He can have them perish. There can be physical health. There can be tragedy. They are his. He can actually rescue a pastor because of a church. If a pastor is endeavoring to be faithful in the church, is like, no, not going to do it. I don't care what the Bible says. This is the way we've always done it, and we won't change. Then the Lord can come in and say, actually, he's mine, and I'll put him somewhere where the sheep will follow my voice, my word, my under-shepherd. He does that. Scriptures are clear, Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders those who spoke the word to you, the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and then follow them, okay? So it, this isn't blind follow everybody who has like, I'm pastor, leader, I'm in charge. Okay, let's hear you. Let's watch your life, not, not that you'll be perfect, but it, what's the trajectory of your life? Con, you know, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ, I love this one. This is the bailout. Actually, Jesus, our pastor is not really that. Okay, keep reading. <laughs> because he isn't Jesus. He's to reflect and point you to Jesus, the one who, here it is, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm not the same guy I was when this church called me years ago. I mean, I have the same name. Our family's changed. Our address has changed a couple times. There's been a lot of change that has happened. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not learning or improving on anything. He's the Alpha and the Omega. So verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. And as we as elders review membership lists, sometimes there's rejoicing, and I will tell you, there is too much groaning over some of the members who are functioning in life like this Sardis church. Sometimes the Lord, the one who has all authority, replaces the pastor for the church. There's a group of believers, they love the Lord, they're, they're, they're struggling, and their pastor's just disobedient or indolent or lazy or out to lunch or wrapped up in golf or whatever it may be. And sometimes the Lord will say, actually, that church, you're out. Call the bullpen, let's go. Put somebody else in there who will do my will, who will do what I say. Let's help that church and sometimes the Lord does that. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 this is what Paul says and we urge you brothers you want to know my job description here it is admonish the idle encourage the faint hearted help the weak be patient with the ones that you really like. Oh, my bad. My, my vision's just a little off. I didn't have a, Be patient with them all. There's to be a patience there. I'll note the names of those who said amen the loudest and be patient. <laughs> okay, now, let's get to the message. That's a, that's, I made a longer introduction than Jesus did, okay? That's because we didn't know anything about Sardis, most likely, before we came in here this morning. Do you realize we're still in verse one? And we get to the message. And so instead of this week saying praise from the Lord Jesus, we have to say it this way, praise from the Lord Jesus? Is there, was there praise from the Lord Jesus? He says, I know your works. Church was busy. They were doing stuff. They were active in Sardis. He says, you have a reputation for being alive. You have a name. Greek word is onama. You have a name for being alive. By all appearances, they were a great congregation. Maybe their name was the first great church of Sardis. You know, the first wonderful church, what's in a name? What, what is the value of a name? We changed our name a while back. Grace Community Church. Why? Anybody had too much grace? 
No. Okay, what is a church? It's a community. It's people gathering in need of grace. And, and ecclesia is church. We're called out once by Jesus. It points us to Jesus. If somebody struggles with too much grace, too much community, or too much Jesus calling out people, we can't, we can't mitigate that. We can't solve that. There's nothing to hide behind in the name Grace Community Church. I'll embrace all three of those words, summing up who we are. If somebody comes and they, you know, they say, hey, I'm, I'm calling on behalf of Sam Bankman Freed. We, we've got something new going. Would you like to invest? You're going you gonna to buy into that this afternoon? We've thought of something new. It's not called FTX anymore. It's called something else. You got some money? You're like, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. What was the name you said? No, no, no. I've heard about you, and aren't you in jail right now? Didn't you pull off one of the greatest heists ever known in human history? I don't think I'll be giving you any of my money. What's in a name? Well, these people, they had a great name in the community. Tim Chester says it this way. What matters is not impressive rhetoric or a glossy image, but authentic service in God's sight. Loved ones, we live in a day when there are a lot of churches that have a very glossy image to the community. Very impressive web page, social media, the building, the presence. We are not against excellence, but there has to be gospel substance, Christ-centered substance, not just impressive buildings and budgets and structures, okay? And so there's a lot of, this, this church, man, they were happening, they were in Sardis, they were doing stuff. They had a great name in the community and Jesus says, eh, I'm, not, I'm not good with this. I have a problem with this. The community loved them. They didn't upset anybody. But is that the goal of Christ's church? If we go about feeding the homeless, clothing the poor, elevate women to preaching, after all, that's what the culture's doing right now. It's advancing women and, and have them teach in the congregation. Let's work on the friendship evangelism, but then eventually we just drop the evangelism altogether. That's a fail. If we as a church teach people how to be good parents, have great finances, be successful in their careers, excel in health, wealth, prosperity, but we ignore and abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ, what is that? That's a fail. That's a loss. If we disregard the truth, if we accept everyone because, well, I used to believe this, and then somebody in my family, they came out stating this is who they are, so now I've, I've, I've adapted all of my views. I've just taken everything that I, I knew from Scripture, and I've just chucked it. We accept everybody the way that they demand to be accepted. We refuse to make people feel bad about fornication or living together before getting married. If we adopt the culture's ideology for human sexuality, for marriage and the family, education, then we and all who follow us suffer loss. We're not helping anybody because that approach to ministry leaves people dead in their trespasses and sins, asleep in the darkness. And we have done what Jesus said, don't do, hide your light under a bushel. I don't want to offend anybody. But what if you're offending Jesus? What if we're offending the King of Kings? Does that even bother us? Does that move the needle at all? Or we're, our needle's really moved if we're going to offend any group in the culture, any segment of society. So Jesus moves right. We're still in verse 1 to the problem. I mean, he is just high gear. This is 0 to 60, straight to the problem. He says, you are dead. Jesus gets right to the point. He doesn't mince words. The church was dead. They lack the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. That's what changes everything about a person, about a church. It's a change from the inside out. You notice here, Jesus doesn't mention any doctrinal problems. Hey, work on this. That would be like telling a terminally ill patient, hey, let's try to work on your diet and exercise. It's not appropriate. They're at a different stage in life. And there are some things that were important and they're not important now because they have heard from doctors, we have done all that we can do. That's what Jesus is doing here to this church. There's no mention of persecution. There's no mention of suffering that they were engaged in. Why? Because they were camouflaged. 
You couldn't even see them in the community and stand out as Christians. They just functioned like everybody else on the job. They blended in, and they were nice people. Oh, I remember hearing this, this question posed as a kid. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I was like, ouch. If I was arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me? The church at Sardis was neither dangerous nor desirable because they were dead. This is what is known as the code blue. Get the crash cart. That's what Jesus is doing to this church. He's saying, I hear And he's calling them to wake up. John MacArthur says it this way. They were an active and organized outfit. But the missing ingredient was the Holy Spirit. Consequently, no matter what they did, they were dead. Christ wanted to remind them that the Holy Spirit needs to be in control of his church. It's not our church. Every now and then somebody's like, Pastor, your church? I'm like, yeah, I don't have one. I mean, I serve in one, but it isn't mine. I did not purchase these people with the blood because my blood is tainted by sin. I needed a Savior, and his name is Jesus. So then Jesus gives the prescription. I mean, he's moving. Isn't he moving? Isn't that, some of you work in the medical field. I mean, you don't show up. I remember when Ginger was giving birth to Emma, and the, and the doctor came in, the anesthesiologist came in. I was sitting there. We didn't know anything. It was the first child. He comes in, and he was talking to Ginger, and, he, and her hands, she was not breathing well, and so her hands were kind of curling up, and she's, you know, and he came in, he's like, oh, and he's looking at her spine. Has anybody told you in elementary school that maybe you had, what, scoliosis or something? And I'm sitting there like, what are we talking about here? Ginger's like, I can't breathe. I'm in pain, you know. And we're, we're like, what is this conversation we're having? Like, get to the point. <laughs> she needs help. Ease the pain. In a medical, there, there's sometimes where you got to get to the point. That's what Jesus is doing. And so he gives a prescription to them. Here's what you need to do right now. Wake up, all right? Be watchful is what he's saying. Wake up. He indicted them for being dead asleep instead of watching and working for him, for Jesus Christ. So as I mentioned, when we were walking through the city, and that's why it, we took that time to go through the city, because they're sitting there somewhere around, you know, step outside the room and look up at the Acropolis, and they're like, oh, yeah, they were sleeping. They, they messed up. They didn't do what they were supposed to do, and we lost the battle. Jesus is saying, wake up wake up. Warren Wearsby, he says it this way. It is when the church's leaders and members get accustomed to their blessings and complacent about their ministry that the enemy finds his way in. Somehow that soldier, oh man, I really need that helmet. I gotta have that helmet. You know how expensive that helmet was? I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to pay for that helmet. I'm gonna go get the, I'm gonna go get the helmet. And they lost the city. And they lost the war. So be watchful. Wake up. And then Jesus says, strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. He said, it's about to die. It's like a fire that's about to go completely out. You know how hard it is to keep that fire going? Maybe all the wood is wet everywhere. He had a little, we've done that on some man, man campouts, you know. All the wood is wet. Everything's wet everywhere. We need a fire. How do you get the fire going? Oh, you got some little coals. How do you get those coals? It's hard. But he said, I, I, there's some coals down in there. There's a, a, a sign of life down in there. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Hudson Taylor said it this way. When God's work is done God's way, it never lacks God's supply. In Sardis, they were doing their work their way and had nothing supplied from the Lord. So Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, he knew the provision of the Lord. I'll trust the Lord. I'll do ministry his way and I'll trust him and he will meet every need. 
Jesus says to them, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Their works are being done their way, in their own power, according to their own desires, and that is the extreme opposite of letting our light shine, Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Matthew 5, 16, that verse is in the context of persecution and suffering. Let your light shine there. Remember, your salvation is his third instruction. Be watchful, wake up, strengthen what remains, revive what remains. Remember your salvation. Let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to the gospel. This is very similar to what he said to the church in Ephesus, but it's a reversed order. Remember, keep, repent. That's what he says to Sardis. Go back to what you received and heard. You remember when the gospel came, probably from Ephesus, planting a church, and they came into your city and said, no, no, Artemis can't save you. Jesus can. Go back to the basics. It was delivered to you at great cost. Jesus shed his blood to, to give you life and forgiveness and mercy. And people, they spent their lives and they came and they shared the gospel with you and you have forgotten this great sacrifice so that there could be a church in Sardis and you have lost the plot. You're off mission. Go back to the basics. Remember your salvation. Go back to God created us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. But our sins separated from him. He's holy and we're sinners. Sins cannot be removed by doing good deeds. And so paying the price for our sin, Jesus came. He lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. He was buried and he rose again the third day so that everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him is given life that never ends. It's the gospel. In that moment, they have forgotten that message. They haven't shared that message with anybody in how long? Oh, but they were busy. They were doing. Is this not convicting? He says, keep what you've been given. Hold tightly to the gospel of Christ, tereo. It's a Greek word that means to watch, to guard, to protect. That's a summation of pastoral ministry and all ministry in the church. It's stewardship. Whatever it is that you do, do you regard it? I'm gonna keep this. See, but it's different. It's not keeping it like this is mine and nobody else, you know, can do whatever. Pick any ministry. This is mine, this pulpit. This is mine. Mm -mm. No, the Lord has given me today to stand behind this pulpit for this hour, but it's a stewardship. It's not ownership. And if my heart just, that's it, then someone else will have the baton handed to them and they will stand behind this pulpit under the weight of the word of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit and say, God moves his workmen, but his work goes on. And he will build his church. And it's not subjugated to any one man or woman's name. It's all in the name and the character and the promise of Jesus. I will build my church. And nobody's going to sneak in and take us off mission. That's a paraphrase. <laughs> Gates of hell not prevail against it. Keep what you've been given and then repent and heed the warning. Metanoeo is the Greek word. It means to do a 180, turn around, a complete change, not a veer, okay? It's not a Y in the road. This is do a U-turn, not a minor change. This is stop, pull over, turn around, and go the other way. That's what he's saying. He demanded from them a change of mind, heart, and behavior. That's what metanoeo is. It's not just a, oh, Lord, I, I, I you know, say some, some things, that some nice things, or I, I, you know, what, am I, what am I supposed to pray, pastor? Okay, Lord Jesus, and I pray that, yes. This is a complete, I'm a sinner. All of my religious baptism, confirmation, communion, giving, all of that stuff, it, it, it hasn't washed away one sin. I deserve hell. 
The lights are going out. The air is going out of the room. And then someone says, but Jesus took your place. And if you don't trust in you anymore and your resume and you trust in Jesus, he'll give you life that never ends. He'll give you his life, resurrection life, then like the thief on the cross. And I trust in Jesus. My Savior, the one. I trust in him. I trust in the Lord. I trust in God. And he says, I'll take you. I've just been waiting. And then we realize he did that work all along. It wasn't us. It was him drawing us to salvation. Romans 13, 11, Paul says, besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He wrote that 2,000 years ago. Yeah, and salvation, the ultimate being with Christ, glorification, it's nearer to you and I now than it was last week when we started Revelation, when we started ministry, you know, together. It's nearer, it's closer. And then Jesus warns them. He warns them. Now, in this warning, okay, repent and heed the warning is what he says. He says, I will come like a thief in the night. You won't see me coming. You won't know I'm coming. But you've been warned I'm coming. You hear what he's saying. You hear the love. Now, do you, do you love me as your pastor? Because sometimes there's a warning that needs to be given, and this is a message that is teed up. Say, do you need to wake up from sleep this morning? Do you need to wake up? Have you put all kinds of other family obligations, pleasures, desires, all of that in front of Jesus? Or is Jesus what you see all of those relationships and functions through the lens of Jesus? Because if it's gotten out upside down, then Jesus says, wake up. Hey, wake up. Your life is going by. Don't you remember? It was about a minute ago you were young and you were in high school. Don't you have memories that seem like it was just a moment ago and you were riding your little bike and learning how to go down a sidewalk somewhere on a road and your dad was helping you or mom or grandpa or somebody? And you say, yeah, that was, ooh, that was 50 years ago. And you start doing calculation. And if you don't know Christ, then it, it's paralyzing. And if you know Christ, you say, oh, but, but this momentary life, my day of redemption is nearer now. God, help me to pick up my knees and run for the finish line. I don't want to be looking over my shoulder. What are they doing? What are they doing? I want to be looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. We'll kill you. I chose the cross. You think that was a threat to him? We'll whip you. I'm headed there. I made you, he could have said. I made all the materials in that whip you're about to use on me. And this is love. Not that he said I love you, but that he laid down his life for sinners. The no good people. The not cleaned up people. The people that say, that stop saying I'm not that bad, I tried to be good. They say I'm awful, I'm a sinner. I've repented and I've heeded the warning. No compromise. And there's no comfort, there's no comfort from Jesus to them. He says I'm coming. There's not, this isn't a comforting, hey, I'll be home soon. All right, love you, bye. This is, I am on my way. You better wake up. You better remember me. But then get to the promise. There's a beautiful word for the faithful few and Jesus gives a reward. He says, there's a reward and he speaks directly to the remnant in Sardis. He says, yet you still have a few names there. That's the same word, onama. In Sardis, people who have not soiled or defiled or, or their garments. This is the promise that he says in this conclusion. Union with me and I'll clothe you in white. You will walk with me in white. The curse is forever reversed. 
He said, there's a few. Now, you ever go into a motel and then you look at the towels, right? You're staying somewhere in somebody's house, maybe your own house. Now listen, one wife, three daughters, then they start wearing that makeup. That makeup gets eyeliner. What color is that? Really dark. And then they start using these beautiful white washcloths that I just love so much. And we wash them and bleach them. And I look at them. This one came from the office. This does not come from my house. And I'm like, what? Don't they make things you can throw away to not to just, that's beautiful, just white and clean and lovely. And Jesus says, there's a few in the church and they're still like, oh, I can get that underwater and wash up with that. It's not been polluted. You didn't clean the shoes off with it. And they say, here you go. Want to wash your face? When I got back from Africa, I, had, I was somewhere and I needed to clean my shoes and I grabbed a rag and I wiped up that red clay. I was like, that ain't coming out. I've been upset with the girls, but I think I just took that, I think I took that washcloth and it went into a different category. Jesus says, I see you. I know where you're at. You will walk with me in white. The curse forever reversed. You see, our fellowship was broken in the garden by our first parents, Adam and Eve. They sinned, paradise lost, now regained at the cost of our Lord's life. So he's describing here his union with him, presence with him because he's worthy. And so therefore, because he's worthy and we're in him, he can say you're worthy. Not because anything you've done, but because of the one that you are in. Because of his work. There's evidence that temple worshipers would not be permitted to enter if they would come to the temple and their garments would be dirty. Unthinkable. Think of a wedding gown. No dirty garments. The purity of Christ's bride on full display. There's two weddings that come to mind. Life-changing for me, two of them. The day we got married, that door opened in the back of Oak Hill Church in Somerset, Kentucky, and what, you know? Ginger's brother crying his eyes out over here. My sister, he's taking my sister. And then the day that Emma, I could give her hand to Stephen, Ginger's hand given to me in marriage, the joy of giving Emma's hand to Stephen in marriage. But you see the dresses. This is what Jesus is saying. He's speaking to the, this little ember in the church. These few people are like, we're like kind of outnumbered here. We just love Jesus and we want to share the gospel and everybody's like, calm it down already. Come on, stop singing so loud and put your hands down already. Come on. We're refined, you know? And Jesus is saying, no, this is how I see you. And there's coming a day, you'll have me and I will clothe you in white. And they knew all about clothing in white. I showed you the marketplace. This is what garments would mean. Festivity, victory, purity, and glory. We see this all through Revelation. And this is what he says, I'll, I'll clothe you in a white robe. He says, I'll, I'll give you a second promise. Everlasting life. I will never blot your name out of the book of life. Oh, pastor, does that mean that we can maybe have our name blotted out, maybe lose our salvation? No, he's saying, you've heard of other people and somebody turns less desirable. They used to have money and then they lost their business and now they don't have money. Take them off the list. Don't invite them to the party. They went bankrupt. They don't have anything anymore. They're not desirable. They can't do anything for us anymore. So let's, let's take them off the list. And Jesus says, I'll never do that to you. I'll never blot your name out, but, but Jesus, you saved me and I still struggle and wrestle with sin and I'm not all that I should be. I'll never blot your name out. I'll never disown you. I knew all of that when I died for you. I knew all of that before I spoke the world into existence. You think I'm gonna go back on my word? I'll never blot your name out. And he says, and I will, I will give you acknowledgement for all, before all of heaven, before my father and his angels. I will own you. I won't back down. I will say, yep, yep, they're with me. They're with me. They're mine. I paid for them. I love them. I clothe them in white. I have given them life that never ends. They're with me. 
And he's, do you hear what he's saying this to the church in Sardis that wants everybody in the community? Oh, that, that's so wonderful. That's so wonderful. And thank you for changing your views and toning it down and doing all that and, and getting with the times and being on the right side of history. And Jesus says, you can have that or you can have me, but you can't have both. And I will confess, I will own you before my father and his angels. I'll stand up for you. I'll intercede for you. And that demands earthly denial and it leads to suffering. But it gains a heavenly applause and affirmation that will never end. Listen to what Jesus says, and with this, you know, do you have ears? Do I have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10. So have no fear of them. Don't lose the context to what we're about to read. Don't be afraid of them. I see you, that ember, that remnant, I, I know you. I know your name, and I'll confess your name before all of heaven. I have not forgotten you. I know you. You're good, your struggles, I know you. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, hey, say it in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear. He says it again, those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Doesn't he see that? Doesn't he know that? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men. I don't know Jesus. I don't love Jesus. I love me. I love my life. I'm king. I'm king of my life. Whoever denies me before men then I will also deny before my father. They don't love me. My father, they don't love me. They love them. I know I made them, but they love them. They love their children. They love their life. They love their career. They love their entertainment. That's what they loved. And hell is having all the separation from God. They don't love God. So heaven gets described as the place of all of these earthly things. Heaven is where Jesus is. And people who love Jesus will love to live with, serve, and worship him for all eternity. And Jesus says, I will confess your name before my Father and his angels. So let that encourage you. Let that encourage us, church, to wake up out of sleep and say, there are people around us. Does it break your heart? It does mine. That we, I drive by hundreds of, Thousands of houses, neighborhoods, and I know no one is here coming from those neighborhoods yet, and they're unreached by us with the gospel. It's increasingly breaking my heart. How are we reaching the schools right now? What kind of presence are we having in our community? Oh, may God give us the power of the Spirit to have a wider influence because souls matter. But just like some are maybe sleeping under this message right now, literally, some of us are sleeping spiritually. Oh, may we wake up. Will you stand with me? Oh, Father in heaven, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me for ways of putting other important, sometimes not important things in the place 
of loving you and loving people with the gospel. Father, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to be faithful witnesses to Christ. Give us wisdom in the areas of our priorities and schedules that you are in first place and you allow us to repent today, to engage in community, to worship, walk, and work, and serve you together for as many days, months, and years that you should give us in this one brief life. I pray, Lord, by your spirit that you call men and women and young people to faith in Christ today that someone under the sound of my voice hearing this message would realize their need of a savior and they would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus right now. And then let us tell the world through the waters of baptism of their faith. Lord, you are good. And we say the same about you that Jesus, that your father said, you are the beloved son and you are my savior and I worship you, and we worship you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.